Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also wanted to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast that I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoy the sermon today. God bless. A lot of stories of enemies in the house, I can hear. All right. All righty. So uh, just a quick show of hands. Um, Who here is the youngest child? All right, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I just want to say I see you, and I understand you, and I know your pain. I have an older sister that is seven years my superior, uh, which means that when I was about the tender age of 10, fifth grade, my sister was going off to college. Uh, It was a day that I was so excited for. I was looking forward to that day because she'd be heading out of town and off my hands for good. And um, there's this thing about my sister and I is that when I was really young, I'd be your classic youngest child, and I would annoy her, I would antagonize her. But my past was always because I'm the youngest child. This is my job. This is what I get to do. And there's one thing that I always loved was the ocean. And so whenever we go to the ocean or go to the beach, I'd always say, this is me at like age seven, not 16, um, but I'd always say at age seven, I can't wait to go to the specific ocean specific ocean. And I just remember, I have vivid memories. This is my childhood traumas. Um, And my sister would come up to me, and she would come up to my shoulders, and she would grab them, and she would look me eye to eye, and would say, Pacific Ocean. And then I would always say, whenever I did the um, dishes, I would always say, I'm grabbing, oh, I'll take the knife, the knives, the knives. And then again, she would come up to me, and she would grab me by my shoulders, and she would say, knives, knives, until it was ingrained into my head that I would never forget that it was knives. And the truth is, is when I look back at this, is that all these little micro moments that would happen growing up, it felt a lot like a normal family of six, a big family that were just at odds with each other. Uh, But the truth is, for me and my reality, when I was 7, 8, 9, and 10, it felt like I was living at home with a bully. It felt like I didn't have two parents, but I had three parents. I had one, I had someone that was always out to get me. I had someone that was always trying to correct me, someone that was always putting me down. And I remember when I first uh, heard of the idea heaven when I was seven years old. Uh, I was in second grade, and they said it was this other place that happens after you die. Uh, so what do, I do when I, what do I do with that knowledge? I go home, and I tell my sister, I'm going to punch you so hard that you go to heaven. <laughs> and then my dad takes the bar of soap and then washes my mouth out and my tongue with soap. And I always just felt like I was... Um, put down and bullied 
And, and this developed more in my growing up through the years. I would come home with bad grades. I would have teacher um, conferences all the time. And I just had this feeling that I was less than, that I always felt like I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't good enough, um, that I wasn't worthy of love. And, and I, I trace a lot of that back to my childhood of mistreatment. And it felt like this emotional abuse. And I think about the passage here that we're in today, and I think at some point or another that we can feel and relate to this level of mistreatment or this abuse in our lives. You know, I think of the coworker or the boss that has overstepped their boundaries, that has placed heavy-handed limits on you, that feels like they're out to get you, they've deemed you either unfit or unqualified, or they try to get you fired. And I think about how that feels like that's an enemy that someone's out to get you, that someone has a target on your back, that's treated you unfairly. I think about the once close friend or the relative that you've done so many moments, lived so much life with, had so many stories with, but then one day they kind of take it too far and they overstep boundaries. And instead of respecting or honoring these stories or these moments they've seen you in, they wield them against you. They lord it over you. They shame you with it. I think about the family member or the relative that, um, that puts themselves over you every time, that feels like they get their vacation days over you, that they get to say what the family does, and then when money gets involved, it feels like they've chosen money over the family relationship, and how much that can feel like an enemy. And what happens when our enemies, it's not verbal abuse or it's, or it's uh, emotional abuse, but it is actually truly physical. It's a physical assault or a physical abuse. That someone forcing themselves on you or has taken things too far or has taken things that, that wasn't theirs and have crossed its boundaries, how we can still feel, how you could still feel the aftermath, the depth of that hurt and pain, the audacity of their great offense, and think, how could any person ever do this? And the more I sit and read Luke 6, I think that Jesus was calling the broken and the hurting people. He was calling people just like us, and he knew exactly who he was speaking to. And for a moment, if you guys can just close your eyes and just imagine this with me. Close your eyes, close them down, close them now. Don't go to sleep on me, though. But if you can just imagine what it would be like to live in ancient Rome at this time, that you're living on a street corner that is bustling and moving, and that outside your door that you have your local Roman guard that always patrols your neighborhood area. And that there's laws in place that he's able to sidestep, he can abuse, that he is stronger than you in every physical way. And as you pass him every single day down to the market, he could throw insults, profanities at you. He could, he could take from you. He could threaten you, even threaten to whip you publicly. For others, when they hear the word enemy, they would think of their neighborhood tax collector and think about your local ta tax collector that would knock on your door at any day, coming to collect after a hard day's work. I think about the manipulation that they would do to do heavy taxes and take from you and take from what you've, hard, uh, what you've worked hard for that day. And I think about if you, uh, you guys can open your eyes now, but I just think about the person that has a disease and leprosy, the person that's crippled with the lame hand or the lame foot, how they can feel like the enemies is everyone else that's not them. Everyone else that walks past them every single day, that leaves their cup empty, that looks down on them, 
thinks that it's uh, a result of their sin, that thinks that they're unclean and unworthy of love. I think about the, the leper that it has shut doors everywhere he goes, that how he can feel like that's his enemy, that the church doors are closed to him, that, the, that his neighbor's doors are closed to him, how they can feel this deep sense of resentment and feelings of disdain. You know, I think those feelings are just as real today as they were back then. And I think Jesus, understanding this, says to a crowd, uh, says to our church, one of the most radical and most hallmark identifiers of Jesus' teaching and ministry. In all of his ministry, this is one of his most radical teachings, and it's this. If you join me in Luke 6, verse 27, the Bible says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. And if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For all those in attendance and all of us just listening, can we just collectively agree that this is so offensive? That this just seems so, like, jarring. This just feels so um, disconnected from reality. It feels so insensitive to what we're experiencing. And yet, and I just get the sense, like, why would we ever listen to these commandments? And yet, I peel back and realize who we're talking to. That we're talking to Jesus, who, who understood enemies just as well as anybody out there. That he had enemies every single day when he went to his job and to his ministry. He had Pharisees following him around to catch him, to have him imprisoned, thrown in jail, caught for um, heresy. I think about Jesus who had even a disciple amongst him that he knew was going to eventually betray him. And this was an enemy that he would continue to break bread with, an enemy that he would continue to invite to the table. And yet Jesus knew he was an enemy all along. Lastly, one of Jesus' enemies is us. In Romans 5.10, it says that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That we were enemies of the cross. We've actually turned our backs on him more times than we can probably remember. And we've opted for idols and personal pleasures. We've probably hurled threats or curses at Jesus at one point or another. And we've even treated him like a convenient friend or a genie. You know, I think about in our, but I think about those worst moments that we were in and how Jesus loved us by giving us the cross. He did good by us. He blessed us. He prayed over us when our hearts were numb, when we were distant from him. And Jesus turned us who were once enemies into neighbors through his unconditional love. And so when we fully recognize and remember what Jesus has done for us, how can we look at Jesus face-to-face -face in the eye and withhold that love from others after, after we look at the cross? You know, there's a story of uh, Kimberly and I have a lot of shared enemies, um, not for like a joint reason, just because we're married. But one of our shared enemy is, um, is, um, is robbers, is car robbers. And so two years ago, there was um, this awesome idea I had as a husband when we went camping. It was to put my spare key in our other car just in case if we get locked out, we can open up the other car, right? Are you tracking that? 
Everyone's tracking that, right? It makes sense. Okay. So anyways, another thing I did is when we got home, I totally forgot that I left the spare key. So one day, some robbers came into our neighborhood, and they stole a car. They got into Kimberly's car, and they said, hey, what are these spare keys doing in here? And then they clicked the clicker, and they're like, it's that car. And then in that car, they found the other keys to Kimberly's car. So we call it a BOGO deal because this was the day that the robbers got a two-for-one deal. And I specifically remember um, just how much Kimberly and I felt so down and out. We felt so embarrassed. Um, We were already down to our last rainy day funds. And here we have two of our own cars stolen from us right outside our house. And I remember the first moment we had is me and Kimberly laughing um, because I, uh, laughing, you know, I don't know. I think at that moment, all you can do is laugh it off. But seven days later, they recovered the car, everything wiped, all games, all cash, all, everything is taken except one item that was left in the back, my basketball shoes. And I remember in my basketball shoes that Kimberly got me for my birthday, and I look at them like, wait, what the heck? Where, where's my shoelaces? So the robbers took the shoelaces, ditched my shoes, didn't like them, and then I put my shoes on, and I realized how hard it is. And they took out the soles, the inserts from inside the shoes, but then they ditched the shoe. So Kimberly and I look back at our enemies, and I just remember us praying about this and just kind of laughing that maybe it was them that needed a soul. Pretty good, pretty good. They need a soul. All my Bibles and my Christian books taken, maybe they needed it more than us. And, and I look back at those moments that we were able to have this peace that surpassed all understanding. And it was because we had known that those things were all borrowed and given as gifts to us to begin with. It was this full recognition that even though I don't rob cars, that I have certainly had my fair share of things that I've done too. And so that we can extend uh, that grace to them as well too, and even go to the lengths of praying for them. That those, uh, those shoelaces and those soles would allow them to enjoy basketball for the rest of their lives. Okay, so when we remember all that he's done for us, even at our worst, we're in turn uh, able to extend this to others. In the Greek, the word that's used here in this verse is agape. You may have heard of it. And agape love is referred to as the highest form of love. By itself, it's just another word for love in the Greek but it's attributed to God's divine love often. When you think of um, God so loved the world, the word is used agape once again. And it's this idea that it's this unconditional love that wholly seeks the benefit of the other person with no, uh, no reward, no counting the cost, but this selfless divine love that, is only, um, that only comes from God. And so here in this text, agape, or the root word agapao, is used as a command, actually. And oftentimes, we always think of love as this, like, warm, fuzzy feeling. Like, I love this person when things are going really well because they love me. It's this, like, warm, happy, sunshine feeling of love that we tend to think of. But here in the text, the verb or the noun is actually used as a command. And it has so much less to do with feelings or... um, Uh, this warm, fuzzy feeling, and so much more having to do with our actions and that we are commanded to act on behalf of this love. And so this is what Jesus is instructing us to. If we look at verse 29, 
Jesus is saying, this is what agape love does. This is the example of what agape love looks like. In contrast, Jesus warns us of a love that even sinners do, a bare minimum love that is based on what other people will do for me. That's based on I will only reciprocate this love if they've given it to me first. It's this transactional love that we're so used to seeing in this world, in this culture. And it's nothing like the generous love that Jesus has called us to. It's nothing like the generous love that Jesus shows to us. And it's this love that Jesus wants us to be the furthest from. And and as we grow more in our walk in discipleship of Jesus, we head more towards this agape love. And this is what it says. This bare minimum love is in verse 32. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from, who you, uh, from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you again? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. And so Jesus is saying that this is the lowest form of love, that it's this shallow love, it's this immature love, um, is that... It's that it's only if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's self-seeking in nature. It's conditional. But for Christians, our telos, our end goal, our, our whole point of sanctification, our whole maturation journey is to be like Christ, is to be this embodiment of God's love, is to experience and to share and to live out this love that we have received. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that really that this is like a litmus test. That how we love our enemies, our enemy love, is really like a litmus test. The less that you love your enemy, the less that you care for them, the more that you do the bare minimum for them, um, the more that it's all transactional love, it's actually the furthest that we are from God. It's It's the least amount and the bare minimum of love. But on the other side, the ways that we, the more that we love our enemy, the more that we love the hardest people in our lives, the people that have wronged us, the people that have sinned against us, is actually when we're most like Christ. Again, as Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, this is when we are the most like Christ is when we are loving the enemy. And so the more that we have this agape love, a love that transcends our natural inclinations, our fleshliness, our every natural desire, and embraces Jesus' teachings here, there's this power to heal these wounds. There's this power that can transform the enemy into the neighbor. There's this power that can bring lasting peace that comes from Jesus. And so this is why Jesus doesn't instruct us all willy-nilly and just kind of throwing out, love people who love you back. But it's actually this command, this agape love that loves the enemy. And it's central and core to our identity as Christians. It's central to the Christian faith. It's this radical enemy love that can't be understood other than just God's love for us first. So how do we do this? Verse 27 says, in the beginning, Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then he elaborates more in verse 35 saying, again, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. 
I want to put a disclaimer out there that, um, that these commands have no shape, um, way, or meaning, that we would never report someone, that we would never call the police on someone, that we would never um, do healthy distance from someone if needed from an enemy. But I do think these commands have a challenge for us here to think about who we place in those categories. And I do think this command asks of us to think thoughtfully, how are we taking them seriously? Are we taking these to heart with the people that we disagree with, with the people that we see uh, that have hurt us or have wronged us? Are we seriously taking this to heart and considering Jesus' teachings? Jesus gives us three commands here. The first one is uh, do good to them. Oh, so much easier uh, said than done. But I thought about this verse more and more of, of this thought of doing good to them, this agape love, this action-based love. And I, I just think about what if we looked for these moments, that as we think about our enemies now, if we think about our enemies to come, that I'm sure will come one day, that if we actively looked for these moments and thought to ourselves, how can we do good to them instead? You know, I think about before a huge fight, someone says something to you that offends you, that ticks you off, that hurts you, that misses you, or that puts you down, um, that what would it look like in that moment to just hear the words of Jesus in the background, just, pl just playing as a background music to your life that says, do to others as you would have them do to you. And I think about taking that even a step further. What would it look like before that big fight or uh, crisis averted or, or war avoided? That what would it look like for you to go on a walk and just kind of go to Jesus and take a deep breath and then kind of come back to that person and just apologize to be able to even accept responsibility, to even acknowledge the ways that we have, uh, have missed them? I wonder what that would do to our relationships how different that kind of love would look like to them. For some of you guys, maybe doing good to them is not like talking to them at all. Maybe it's a coworker that you have uh, that um, has offended you, has put you down, has, has hurt you. And maybe doing good to them is just saying hi to them and just saying hello or wishing them a happy birthday or wishing them a restful weekend. And it's to say that I'm still here. It's to say that I still care about this relationship. Doesn't mean we're going to be best friends. Doesn't mean we're going to hang out after work all the time. Um, but maybe, maybe it could be that. The second command Jesus says is to bless them. You know, I think about at work or um, I just think of all these work analogies, but you're at work and it's this survival of the fittest. It's kind of this dog-eat-dog -dog world. It kind of feels like what someone's loss can be your gain. And um, I think about um, when someone maybe hurts your reputation or even threatens your career or even um, gossips about you in the workplace. And that before you send that really angry email, calling them out, outing them to their boss, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to whisper into your ear the words of Jesus that says, do to them as you would have them do to you. And you remember that truism that hurt people hurt people. And instead, you bless this person and you break this cycle of negativity, you break this cycle of hurt and wound and pain. And instead that you now can wish them well and that you would diffuse gossip in the workplace, and that you could speak fairly of them. Again, it doesn't mean they're best friends, but you can turn the other cheek and you can speak honestly about them. 
instead of spilling to others, drawing people onto your side, forming tribalism, and just pushing again this hurt. I wonder how this love would change our workplace. It would change our homes. And lastly, Jesus says to pray for them. You know, I think about, um, I think I wrestled with this message a lot over this bullet point a lot. I was, I was, I felt like I was worked up this whole past week. I was weary thinking about some of these points. And a lot of it was thinking, man, do I, can I even live up to this kind of love, Lord? Can I even take these kind of steps? Have I even done these kind of steps in my own life? And I just felt Jesus saying to me that and asking and challenging me that what if number three is our entry point? What if praying for them is just step one? What if praying for them is just as far as we can go? That's as far as we can take. Like, I don't want to interact with them. I don't want to hang out with them. I'm not going to email. Maybe it just needs to be from afar. We just need to pray for them. And I think Jesus understands this with his enemies. And I think it's in this space that this might be the most loving thing that we can do for someone, that as we approach uh, the Father in the throne room in this intimate space, that we're spiritually taking our enemy with us, and we're saying, Lord, would you, would you bless them? Would you shine your face upon them? Lord, would you help me to see them the way that you see them? Lord, would you help me to see the things that I've brought to the table as well, too? Would you help me to see the parts where I have offended or been an enemy to you? And I just think it's in this throne room and in this prayer that we are actually the closest to Jesus and the cross. And, you know, I think about um, with my sister continuing on the story, we ended up kind of being arch, ne- in my eyes, in my eyes, like arch nemesises throughout my childhood. I just remember her being 11, and when she left for college, it was just the best day. I ran into her room. I ransacked it for any coins and change. I was taking any food I could get, and I just felt like um, peace was back in my home. It wasn't until 10 years later um, that the Lord called me to be neighbors with her, literally. Uh, She lived in another state, so I thought 3,000 miles was going to be enough, but it wasn't. And the Lord called me to the island of Hawaii and where she lived about five to 10 minutes down the street from me. And here I was with five to 10 years of this resentment, of this dissonance, of this hatred towards her. And I remember she had just given her life to Jesus and it was like the last thing I wanted for her. Uh, I didn't know the Lord, I didn't know the Lord. (laughs) So she's like all an angel, super bubbly. And I was like, who is this? And I remember she picked me up, and she's like, I'll take you to church every Sunday. I'll take you out to breakfast. And in my jaded heart, I was like, I'll take you up on the food, but I still hate you. And it wasn't until this moment till the Lord did a number on my heart, just working on those corners, buffing out those sharp edges, drawing me closer to him, that um, one Sunday service at her church, uh, I gave my life to the Lord during an altar call. And um, the thing is, is uh, her friend, oh, this, this Hawaiian guy comes up to me after service, and he comes up to me and he says, congratulations. And I said, your eyes were supposed to be closed. You're not supposed to see my hands raised. <laughs> but anyways, he says, congratulations, and he gives me a big hug. And he says, uh, I was like, who are you? And he says, I want you to know um, how much your sister prayed for you, that for the past three to five years or four years, Uh, I'm in her small group, and she would just always ask for prayer for you. 
He's like, I knew when you went to ASU. I knew when you were experimenting. I knew when you had mono. I knew when you were like hospitalized. <laughs> he just kept on like naming down all my sins. He's like, I know when you did that, I did that. And, um, and he just said, your sister prayed and asked for prayer for you every single week. I think it's this, this space that Jesus invites us in uh, to step outside our comfort zones, to rise above our human nature, to go against our flesh, as you will. And it's to imitate this perfect love of God. It's this full awareness of what God has done for us, his sacrifice for us, even while we were still sinners, even when we were his greatest enemies and opponents. And it's this invitation to embody uh, this invitation into this divine love and to embody the heart of what it means to follow Christ. It's to love unconditionally. It's this agape love. It's this enemy love, just as our Heavenly Father loves us. You know, I'm going to close now. I want us to um, take the next 30 seconds. I'll close us in prayer. But I want to invite you guys to just close your eyes and to pray with me. And I want you guys to to just kind of hold the enemy that maybe came up into your mind during God's word this morning. To maybe just hold that person that you hold that, whether it was resentment or the thing that they did to you. And I just want to encourage us that maybe we could do a prayer right now that feels God-honoring. And for those that feel like, I'm not ready for that, I can't possibly do that, you don't know what they've done to me, Kevin, I just encourage you to share that with your father in prayer in these next 30 seconds. Just kind of share, share with them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, I pray that uh, as a church, that as we think about the cross, as we think about your blood shed for us, if we consider the heights and the lengths and the depths that you've gone to, to turn us from once enemies into neighbors, into citizens, into friends, into beloved sons and daughters, Lord, how could we not respond in love to that? And so, Lord, I pray is from that space that that love would compel us. Lord, I pray that for those uh, in our church family today, Lord, that maybe need to, to reconcile with another person or a brother or sister or for the person that needs to ask for forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that we could just surrender this at your feet, Lord and that we could look to Jesus' teachings and just say your way is so much better than ours. Lord, give me this portion. Lord, thank you for your love and help it to flow through me and to all the other people um, that I'm in relationship with. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection, helping kids 
bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.